welcome everyone to Two Pills Podcast. Today, I am so excited to have Dr. Rita Olins on the podcast. Welcome. If you can, just go ahead and tell us about yourself and about your teaching style. Okay. Thank you very much for inviting me. This is really exciting. Um, One of the best secrets I need to tell you to start off the bat is that nurses love pharmacists. And I understand you're all pharmacists, so this is really kind of cool. Um, I don't know why there is this affinity. I work a lot in antimicrobial stewardship. Mm -hmm. And wherever I go and I talk to the nurses, they always tell me how much they are comfortable talking with the pharmacists um, rather than the doctors sometimes. So uh, pharmacists have become a big part of my life in the last couple of years because I've been walking around with stewardship. But uh, you asked me to tell you a little bit about myself. Yeah. Um, I am a pediatric nurse practitioner hospitalist at a teaching hospital here in Boston. Um, I work at the Spalding Hospital. Oh, great. It's one of the te- yeah, it's one of the teaching hospitals. And um, I also work for the NGH Institute as a, uh, an assistant nursing professor. And my specialty is pediatrics and community. And I've been doing that since 2013. I have a, I've kind of bounced around a little bit over many years. Um, I was, I started out as a nurse. I, I went to nursing school for three years because I couldn't imagine going for four whole years. <laughs> And then um, when I got out, I realized why I needed to go to school for four years. So I went back and they wanted me to start my nursing all over again. Um, Those were the bad old days. So before the IOM report in 2010. And um, so I went back and since they wanted me to start from the beginning, I decided I was gonna gonna put together my own major and I became a thanatologist. Oh, right. Yeah, somebody who studies death and dying. So I took anthropology, sociology, psychology, philosophy, and theology and put it together to make a degree. And that's where I think I started to learn how to collaborate across disciplines. So I worked in um, hospice in the beginning of the hospice movement in the United States. This was back in the 70s. Mm-hmm. And then um, I burnt out badly and decided to go to school to become an architect. Oh, wow. So, yeah, I know. So that's not in my bio. So, um, <laughs> that's okay. So, so I took off a bunch of years, and I kind of piddled around and taking a lot of courses. Then one day I had an epiphany uh, driving up 93 in uh, Boston. Um, and I realized I really was a nurse. So I went back to school, and um, I found that I was going to stop running away from pediatrics. So being the oldest of seven children, pediatrics was so easy for me. So mm-hmm. I did pediatrics, and um, and then I was working in adolescent health care for a, a number of years and, and worked especially in school-based health centers. Kind of worked my way through that whole movement and loved it. But when our last of our children um, graduated from college and we paid off the last college bill, my husband and I jumped off the edge of the universe and went to the U.S. Virgin Islands, where uh, we worked in HIV STD TV. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, so my husband, Dick, um, Dick Olitz, who is my collaborator in a lot of the research and publications that I do, um, he and I worked together in HIV STD TV 
in the Virgin Islands, and I used to get on a plane twice a week and just kind of fly over to uh, from St. Croix to St. Thomas. Mm-hmm. And then I was very active in, in um, collecting data and working on seven different grants from CDC and HRSA around HIV, STD, TB. Mm-hmm. Well, after three and a half years, we realized we were not going to be able to stay forever. So we sold our home, we took our dog, we came back to the United States, and that's when I got my doctorate. And then I went into teaching. So I've only been teaching since 2013. But um, one of the the goals Dick and I had in coming back was to keep collaborating together. And he is an infectious disease specialist Mm -hmm. um, and a doc. And um, he had been very active and working in antimicrobial stewardship for years. And so he was actually... um, uh, we had a we had some friends over one night, and they had a they had a conversation about how to incorporate antimicrobial stewardship into hospitals. This was Dr. Alfred D. Maria, who is our epidemiologist in the state in the Massachusetts Department of Health. Mm-hmm. And the conversation kind of went around and around for a little while, and I finally said, "Look, guys, you can't do this without nurses because they're the ones at the bedside." Absolutely. And it, and it was like an aha moment. So I was in getting my doctorate at the time, so I used that as my doctoral research and um, got it published. And uh, then uh, Dr. Arjun Srinivasan at CDC read the pre-publication and said, oh my gosh, this is what I've been waiting for. I've been waiting for a link to get the nurses in. So uh, he invited me to be part of the playbook. Uh, oh, wow. The, yeah, yeah. So that was that was quite a compliment. Absolutely. And then, yeah, and then um, he found the bridge um, through me to the American Nurses Association, and from that came the white paper um, on where nurses are in stewardship and what are the gaps and what are our strengths in helping with stewardship. And from there, I've been invited to IDSA and. Shea and Well, there is so much that we could talk about because I was taking notes as you were talking about just things that I wanted to ask you about. Um, And you're right. Christy is such a connector. And she, um, I always brag on her that I know somebody who went to the Obama Stewardship Summit at the White House. And she's always my example that I I know somebody, you know, who went to that. Um, So I guess uh, I want to talk about hospice and HIV STD because I feel like you were really in on as you said the cutting edge of those movements and so I'd love to know how you've seen those progress but first just talking about stewardship a little bit 
if you could give a synopsis about a nurse's role in stewardship, what mm-hmm. do you see as the most important roles that a nurse plays in stewardship? Because I know at my hospital, nurses come to our stewardship committee meetings, um, but that's mm-hmm. kind of a newer development, whereas it's usually been run by pharmacists and physicians. So what would you say are some of the most important takeaways for a nurse to be involved in stewardship? Well, I think number one is to recognize that he or she has a lot of knowledge about that patient that needs to be shared in a way that can help a pharmacist and a physician to do their jobs better. So nurses uh, know when those diets have changed and should Mm -hmm. be informing pharmacists and physicians. Nurses can be really good at taking histories. We know that nurses are very well regarded by the public and they have more access to um, the patients and families so they can ask sometimes a better allergy history mm-hmm. um, than, than they're doing. So that's one of the projects I'm working on right now is to figure out how we can get nurses to do a better job in allergy history taking. But nurses can, uh, can know the subtle signs of early C. diff because mm-hmm. they are taking care of that patient. Absolutely. Um, yeah, so nurses can um, uh, also be uh, give, give information, clinical information about how the patient is doing that can be relevant to how successful that antibiotic is right now. Mm-hmm. So nurses don't prescribe, and I think that is why they were left out in the beginning of the antimicrobial stewardship movement, mm-hmm. because they don't prescribe, they don't um, uh, count out the drugs, but they actually administer the drugs. Absolutely. And, and one of the things we did find out, which was really interesting, is that nurses are sometimes not administering the drugs correctly. So hmm. we found that um, using, not flushing IV tubing, hmm. and not getting the complete uh, bolus of antibiotics is was a problem. We uh, found out that you know nurses knew that that patient had been on a house diet for three days and nobody knew that we could switch from IV to PO and thus get the patient out of the hospital even faster. Right. So, and, and nurses do have a really good role in uh, teaching. So one of the things that I did, uh, one day we had a little extra time in class and I said, students, tell me, what are the ways that you communicated with patients and families in the last month? They put together a list of 14 different techniques that we wow. have taught them in order to be able to communicate effectively. And I run simulations mm-hmm. um, in my pediatric course and most of the simulation is about communication. I expect them to have the content, but I expect them to be able, my students to be able to um, communicate really well with the team. And that is something I stress myself. I know um, it's a big piece of nursing. So if communication is a big piece of nursing, nursing is talking to the pharmacists, they're talking to the doctors, they're talking to the case managers, they're talking to the micro lab. Mm -hmm. A well-informed nurse, a nurse that knows about stewardship principles can assist the um, stewardship teams and, and and can be synergistic. They, they should not be seen as leaders, or they're, they're not leaders, 
but they're really damn good followers. Yeah, and contributors, absolutely. And, and contributors. And I think yeah. um, where I've seen a huge role for nursing, our um, infection preventionist is a nurse, has a nursing background, and she has her MPH. And so we rely so heavily on our nursing staff on the inpatient side for foleys and lines since collapses and cowdies are so hot right now as things to be avoided. I think nurses are our front lines where we can talk to them about whether or not these lines are necessary. And just the fact that the lines are present at all is huge. And they have that knowledge as well. Lauren, you really hit upon an early aha moment for CDC the stewardship movement, um, it was that connection with the Caudi and Clabsey through the AHRQ that really got the, um, the healthcare system to recognize how integral people can be, even if they are not putting in the lines, even if they're not writing those prescriptions, mm-hmm. that working together as a team, we can be so much better. And the CLAPSI and CLAUDI data is so significant in in how we were able, as teams, to cut down on these infections. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, that is all very exciting. If we can switch gears a little bit to your teaching strategies. So you mentioned you do simulations. It sounds like you do active learning with asking questions in the classroom. So what is an effective teaching strategy that you've implemented and what's one that's maybe been less effective? Okay, let's see. Um, For example, I'll I'll tell you what I'm doing this summer. Mm -hmm. I teach maternal child to 100 students. Mm -hmm. Um, It's two large groups, so I I, um, work with a maternity instructor. She's actually a SANE nurse and a, a midwife she teaches the maternity section. I teach the pediatric section. Mm-hmm. We'd split the class in two and we'd flip it halfway through. And one of the things that um, I really enjoy doing with this class of 50, now I have 50 students for six weeks to teach them everything they need to know about pediatrics. Oh, that's um, a hefty so, task. Yeah, so I do a lot of active learning and um, the flipped classrooms. So one of, the, one of the things that I do is I, I insist that they do their readings beforehand. Mm-hmm. And then when they walk in the door, I do a Kahoot. Oh, yes. Love Kahoot. H-O-O-T. Okay. Oh, yeah. So I do, I do that on the basic knowledge, the Bloom's taxonomy, the bottom level of, of knowledge. Mm-hmm. And I say to the students, if you are struggling, so they work in teams because we promote teamwork from the moment they walk in the door so that they learn how to communicate. Um, if you are struggling to answer these Kahoot questions, you need to go back. You're not reading effectively. Mm-hmm. So I start them out with that. So I make them own their own preparation. And then I give them a brief, no more than 10 minutes, usually more like eight minutes uh, PowerPoint presentation. Mm-hmm. And um, I walk them through that and allow them to type their notes on the bottom of the PowerPoint. Then I do an evolving case study on that content. Uh, or on that, that system that we're covering. I have to cover four systems in three Ooh. hours. Wow. Oh, yeah, it's really bad. So <laughs> I use a lot of scaffolding, the okay. existing knowledge in med surge, in order, and pharmacy, in order to be able to answer these questions. Mm-hmm. Now, and then to just add one more dimension, it's like a, like a three-dimensional chessboard here. One more dimension I use is... Um, each week, I check 
I do a different developmental level. So I invite a parent with an infant to come in. Mm. And that week I do genetics, cardiology, and respiratory. In fact, I did it last night. And because those cluster right around that age group. Next week I'll be doing the toddler. So of course we're going to be doing peeing and pooping. Mm -hmm. So it's going to be GI, GU, and something else, but has to do a musculoskeletal because it has to do with the toddler. So bringing in live patients, asking questions, I make the students ask the questions from the readings mm -hmm. about what kind, and I give them a whole um, list of uh, uh, developmental pieces that they need to know. They, you know, what stage is this in Piaget? What is normal blood pressures? What is the what are the dental issues in this age group? What are the um, learning uh, things that you need to to test for? What are the safety issues? And so we do this for five weeks. Uh, infants, toddlers, preschoolers, school age, and then the adolescent. I don't invite an adolescent in it. It's too embarrassing. <laughs> We're going to be talking about Tanner staging, and we don't need to be asking some of these personal <laughs> questions to an adolescent. But um, the other grade, the, my students are, are, are remember well enough their adolescents to be able to answer the questions around the developmental needs um, and milestones of an adolescent. But the students find it really helpful because now they realize that Susie Q, who came in as the infant um, on week two, actually, was she saying any words? Was she able hmm. to walk? Is she cruising yet? Um, you know, was she doing that um, tongue thrusting thing that the kids do just before they're able to eat? You know, these are they're able to put these pieces together. So having a live body there is really helpful. I love getting my students to bring in their own children because, mm. because they, the rest of the class who doesn't have children can start to appreciate what their classmates who have children have to also juggle besides school. So it gives a little bit of a spotlight on another type of student that is in this classroom who may not have the luxury of time or is trying to juggle their family responsibilities. So it works really well for pediatrics. So these are some of the techniques I use in pediatrics. Those are great. Um, and I love the idea of the students bringing in their own kids. And like you said, giving mm -hmm. them that perspective of, I know as a faculty member, when my advisees talk about things that they're dealing with, whether it's, you know, taking care of a parent, taking care of their own kids, you know, or things like that, it, it really opens your eyes to, to what's going on. Um, and so, uh, as you've gone through your different um, types of nursing and including teaching, what insight would you have if you had one of your nursing students come to you, maybe just graduated or just starting their first job, what insight about being a nurse would you give them that you wish you had on your first day? Self-forgiveness. Hmm. <laughs> I think, I think um, the pressure in everybody who works in healthcare is that we don't make mistakes. We mm -hmm. really don't make mistakes. And if you can, and this is the advice I give all of my graduating, I teach NPs, nurse oh, practitioners. Sure. Mm -hmm. So what, what I say to all of them is, I say, don't worry about the money on the first job. Don't worry about where the first job is. 
find the strongest team you can work with because you're still learning. And um, if you do not know the answer, you must, you must find somebody and, and be humble about it and say, gee, you know, that's a really good question. I don't have an answer right now, but I'm going to get that answer for you and follow through and bring the question back. I think patients and families respect that more. Mm -hmm. And if they don't, um, the family and patients need to be educated a little bit better that that's the safest way that we deliver care by working as a team and by um, relying upon each other when we're not 100% sure about the answer. It's, it's a lot of pressure on us to always do our best and to not make mistakes. Mm-hmm. This is the only way we get to do it. Being perfect. You know, no one makes any mistakes. Right. Mm-hmm. Exactly. It's, it's, You're feeling that pressure, pressure to be perfect. Exactly. And so you mentioned, you mentioned communication and I, I loved your story about how your students were able to come up with 14 different ways that they can communicate effectively. So mm-hmm. um, in pharmacy accreditation, there's a huge focus on teamwork and education and particularly in the interprofessional education space. So mm-hmm. are there any communication strategies that may be specific to nursing that we could all benefit from other healthcare professionals could or healthcare professions could benefit from learning about from the the nursing curriculum well i know one thing we are i'm also although i'm in pediatrics i'm working in long-term care Mm. um uh antimicrobial stewardship right now and and I have noticed that they're using a lot of SBARs. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, uh, and the SBAR actually came out of the aviation community. Did it? And I didn't know that. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, it was used for airline pilots. Because I've, um, I've always associated with nursing, so I thought they came up with it. But No, we, we stole it from, we stole it from the, um, the pilots. Uh-huh. I, love, I love this. I love the fact that... Um, that's one of the things I really like a lot to be able to talk to people in different fields and learn how they do things and then see if I can adapt it into nursing. So um, the SBAR is a wonderful tool that nurses in long-term care facilities where there are no pharmacists walking up and down the floors or where there isn't a physician coming in every single day in these long-term care facilities it is very critical that nurses learn how to not lead the person who is going to write that prescription. Hmm. So the SBAR um, is, is is really a good tool, and they actually have some scripts now, and you can find these on, on AHRQ. They um, they have scripts that nursing you know nurses whether they are RNs or and LPNs they can use the script in order to give information that's very factual without leading the prescriber to a certain conclusion. Mm-hmm. So I, I think SBAR is a really good way of, of giving information and then saying what you think your plan is going to be and then having somebody be able to reflect back and say, thank you for that information. This is what I think I heard you say. Uh, I have a different way of looking at it. What if we did this first and then we consider your plan? That is a very effective strategy. Um, 
some of the other things my students do, they do experts, which are brief interventions. Okay, can you talk a little um, bit more about that? I'm not as well-schooled as I should be <laughs> on that because I don't use it anymore because I, I used to use it with adolescents mm -hmm. where you found information, um, you give them a piece of information and then you let the patient, uh, uh, you document it well in your chart and then you go back to it the next time you see them. Hmm. Um, one of the things I am using a lot more now and I'm going to be doing a simulation this fall when I teach adolescents is I'm going to be doing um, motivational interviewing. Oh, great. Yeah, yeah especially uh, in pediatrics, it's really important to use motivational interviewing when you're talking about vaccines mm -hmm. and um, vaccine-hesitant parents, um, uh, when you're using in, in adolescents, when you're trying to deliver uh, information about proper condom use yep. or uh, how to take your birth control pills effectively mm -hmm. <laughs> so that they actually work. Um, so motivational interviewing is like my hot thing right now. Mm -hmm. I, I, I speak about it with um, my students and uh, I use that as part of my simulation. I think that's great. It's such an important skill. And I know um, I work with a family medicine residency. And so there's a big push for it with family medicine, you know, future physicians. But when I think about it, you know, we round every morning on newborns, but our doctors are in there for just a few minutes. But, you know, for like for those, for example, those vaccine hesitant parents, which we have quite a few out here in Colorado, I'm sure everywhere, but certainly out here. And so just the thought of that, well, while our docs may only have a few minutes to talk to the patient, the nurse could be reinforcing that with motivational interviewing or just starting those conversations throughout the day while they're with the patient. Um, and so I think that's, that's so important. Again, you speak to teamwork and being able to uh, continue that messaging and to be consistent with our a collaborating um, team and uh, I like this much I'm glad I live long enough to see this kind of collaboration absolutely I, I, I'm not sure it is valued by the reimbursement scheme we have now in the United States <laughs> true because it, it does take time but it does promote safety Absolutely. I could not agree more. And actually, that was a perfect segue that was not planted. Um, and uh, just, but I was just thinking so, you know, earlier when we were talking about kind of your background, I was just curious. I know it sounds like you are someone who is always on the cutting edge of things. I mean, you were on the cutting edge of hospice, cutting edge of um, uh, HIV care down in the Virgin Islands, and now stewardship and particularly in long-term care with the new you know, Joint Commission and everything else, CMS standards and all that going on. I guess with your experiences with those areas where you've been involved when things were just starting and just evolving, what lessons can we take from that to our healthcare situation, whether it is stewardship or, you know, um, anything else kind of that's going on that's new and evolving in healthcare? Are there any lessons that we can learn from those previous experiences that you've had in these big um, issues in healthcare in the past? I'm not sure this is exactly getting to your question, but one of the things that I've appreciated over the years in, in doing these different things is that there are a lot of different types of people that come together um, to, and they have different skill sets. And my skill set may be more of the 60,000 foot 
view and being able to see connections between different places and putting it together, but I'm not great at, at following through. So I have always picked teams that have other skills that I have. So for example, um, I uh, ran a school-based health center and I hired somebody who was my yin to my yang <laughs> because she was excellent at detail work. Mm. I, I'm a terrible editor, so <laughs> I can't edit to save my life. I actually have my students do some of my editing. Uh, but that kind of appreciation of different talents coming together to move a movement along I may be in the beginning of it for this, but I am not the expert in how to implement this, how to operationalize it, how to sustain it. And those people are as critical as the people in the front of the pack. Definitely. So we always need, when, whenever we put a team together, we always need those people. And in fact, in my doctoral program, um, we really got into team dynamics when we all took uh, a Myers-Briggs and then we did a Straight Finders 2.0. Mm. We made up T-shirts. We sat together <laughs> at tables and said, okay, you're the one that's going to do this. You're the one that's going to do that. And we were able to very effectively and quickly, we were the first ones to get our project done because we had found the strengths of each other and had relied upon it. And it was considered um, very, very synergistic. That's great. And I think that is a really, really big key is maybe – somebody who isn't sure what their role would be, you know, because you do see these, the dreamers and the big idea people. And if you don't feel like you're that person, you do have a role with, you know, taking care of part of the task and making sure that that task follows through. Um, and so I think that's, I think that's great advice. My last question for you is what is your overall prescription for success, life, happiness, whether it's in your career or just in general? Marry well. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. Okay. No, what I, I mean, what I mean is surround yourself with people that love you mm-hmm. and you love them and give them what, what you need yourself. You know, make, make yourself a nest uh, that is happy and stable because there is a lot of change going on in this world. You know, in healthcare, of course, we all know that. In, um, in politics, in our communities, in our climate, everything is changing around us. Mm-hmm. And we need the stability of these relationships to ground us in order for us to do our best work. So I always say I married well because, <laughs> um, uh, you know, we, we call ourselves Corporation Olins. Um, <laughs> one of us, we, my husband and I have two daughters. They, they married these great guys. Uh, we consider them our own children. They produce three grandchildren who are perfect. Um, <laughs> but that is what grounds me and gives me the energy to be able to go out and slay the dragons that are out in the healthcare field right now. So I think that antimicrobial stewardship is going to be a big thing to, to bite off. And uh, if we all stay nicely grounded and are able to nurture those relationships that are very important to us, you know, it's going to be good. It's going to be good. That is fantastic advice. I love that. Being able to stay grounded with some stability so that you can go out and pursue everything else. So 
Thank you so much. 